0: I've known David since uh, right after the Reformation began. <laughs> it seems, uh, met him while I was a student at seminary, and he was a, a, a hungry to, to know God's Word. Uh, he was studying at SMU and then eventually came on to Dallas Seminary and studied. Uh, he was in the, a, a Bible study that Barb and I had. It, uh, well, actually, Barb and I weren't having the Bible study. I was having the Bible study. It just so happened that's where I met Barb. And, and she eventually became convinced she should marry me. But that's another story. But David was one of the ones who was in that group. And together we studied the scriptures. And David was hungry for the scriptures. And he went on out of that thirst and hunger to go to seminary. And then he's been involved in various kinds of ministry. Uh, pastoral ministry, education ministry. Uh, has a, just a, always a, a love for God's word. And I've always challenged by his ability to think through the issues. So I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say, and uh, I know you will be as well. So David, come and bless us from your word.
1: Thanks, Drake. I do have one adjustment to uh, Drake's invitation I wasn't quite prepared for. I always feel a burden when I... Preach in someone else's pulpit to honor what has been the faithful preaching of the word of God from the man who is the pastor. Drake's tenure here is virtually unprecedented in the modern church. His faithfulness, he and Barb's faithfulness to serve the the saints of Terrell uh, is an amazing testimony to his long suffering and his uh, desire to be a pastor of of a body of Christ. So I'm always intimidated and feel an obligation, so I sought his permission to make sure that I did something that was not either what he was currently preaching on, John, which I love, or something that he was going to do, which I didn't want to be in anticipation of that. Uh, My wife and I attend Stonebriar Community Church in Frisco, pastored by Chuck Swindoll, And Swindoll, over the course of his normal preaching schedule, will pick a particular series that he's going to do, Minor Prophets, most recently. And then all of a sudden, he took ill and was not able to preach. He had COVID. This is public information, by the way. And the man that stepped in for him the following week, after he had covered Haggai in his survey of the Minor Prophets, the preacher had the audacity to study for the next two weeks Haggai. (laughs) He was like, wait, Chuck just did Haggai. Why are we doing Haggai again? Well... Any book, you can do more than once, and you will learn something from it. So I appreciate, Drake, what you're doing in your study of John, but also your love of Romans and what you're doing in that study. However, I do have one complaint. I didn't think you were going to be here. (laughs) That changes everything. I I had a flashback, Drake, when I realized you were here today. I went, wait, the last time we did this, you weren't here. You were vacationing. I had a flashback to the last time I was calling offensive plays as a football coach, and I ran the offense of this high school team over in North Dallas. And I was very excited about what I had done. i have been doing it for a number of years until one game, the last game I ever called offensive plays, I realized that in the stands... Was a world famous Hall of Fame coach whose grandson was the tight end on my football team. And I realized I'm calling plays in front of Tom Landry. <laughs> Everything I thought I was good at, I suddenly felt completely inadequate as a coach. And I feel the same way with you in the room, Drake. <laughs> so would you mind? No, I'm just... <laughs> oh, to open up the word of God is a blessing among the saints, and I appreciate that. But I want to start with a little bit of a story, and I've worked hard to think through the best way to do this because there's an event that I think we need to consider, an event that would change world history. But before we study and look into that one event that has shaped us all, I want to draw back to some of our own personal experiences, and I'll start with mine, but I'm sure yours are very similar. So bear with me for just a moment by way of introduction. My grandmother was born Virgie Mae Bowen. Drake actually knew my grandmother. I called her Mama. I was her first grandchild. And she told us for years that her mother, who was a McBrayer, was Irish. So I grew up understanding that we were somehow Irish. She was one of 12 children born to a a man who was a quiet surveyor of the Collin County land, and they grew up on the north side of a very small lake called Lavon. They had 300 acres of property. They had a house that had 14 rooms in it for the 12 children. And my great-grandfather had built this home. And I learned quickly that the farm life and being steady citizens of a community were important. Almost all of her brothers and sisters went on and did something in education. Uh, One of her brothers was the commissioner of the Texas Education Association in Texas for 10 years. I had no idea that I would get into education almost as a family tradition. But I thought we were Irish from my grandmother. We hear stories about this boldness that my grandmother had. She was quite proud of being able to call a spade a spade, as she would say. And My grandfather, Sholin, would whisper, even if it is a shovel. (laughs) So I learned that my, my grandmother, Mama, would speak her mind. And I appreciated and respected that. I thought it was just because she was Irish. So we would sit around, and I would hear the stories, and then I realized that, um, you know, what is the story of our family? If you don't mind me recognizing that as you grow up, you kind of look at things a little differently. The years had gone by. My wife, Brenda, who's here today, and I had married. We had two children. We have a son and a daughter, and they were young. And I got interested in our family because, as you know, when you have your own family, you kind of look at what kind of husband and wife, but now father and mother are you going to be. And then you look back at your own experience and you imagine the circumstances of what got you to where you are and then what you're going to do with the opportunity you have as the head of a new family that you're going to create. What legacy will you leave? So you start kind of thinking through what's your family's story. At least I did. So the internet was relatively new. I think I was using AltaVista as a search engine back then. Some of you have no idea what I just said. (laughs) Because all you all know is Google. 93% of all search is done through Google. Back then Google didn't exist. Believe it or not, there was a world before Google. And I did an internet search and I discovered to my surprise the McBrayer family did not go back to Ireland. It went back to Scotland. And I was like, wait, I've told my whole life that we were Irish, and now I realize that we are Scottish. So I printed off what I could print off in terms of genealogy, and I gathered up the papers, and for our next visit to my grandparents, I unveiled my research, and I looked at my grandmother and I said, Mama, I've heard my entire life that we are Irish, I've done some research and I've discovered that the McBrayer family doesn't go back to Ireland, but back to Scotland. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I guess I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever thought that your entire life you thought something to be true and like that? You go, okay, we were wrong. And I was comforted by that fact that what had become the story didn't really change any in terms of her experience, but it's the way we saw the world. And then all of a sudden you start realizing that discovering the history of your family and discovering the experience of who made you who you are is quite the study. For example, how many of you have had to go to a doctor and fill out a family medical history Questionnaire. This is, I think, how it starts. After you've had your children you start thinking about your family, people start asking you personal questions. And the questionnaire may include height, weight, all that kind of good stuff. But when it comes down to, are there any experiences in the family where there's cancer? And all of a sudden you have to go, wait, do I know my family's story? As it turns out, my mother, two weeks short of her 60th birthday, would die of glioblastoma, the most aggressive brain cancer there is. A few years later, one day prior to his 60th birthday, my mother's half-brother, they shared the same father, he would die of glioblastoma. Immediately, as I was approaching my 60th, I start wondering, do I have a ticking time bomb in my head? As it turns out, when she was 58, my sister, my younger sister, was discovered to have a benign tumor in her brain. And they would surgically remove that. She's got no lingering effects. She had to overcome some eye difficulties because it turned out to be some of the distortion of you know, the eye area. But it's all over, she's fine. But have you ever noticed that that's an issue that you start thinking about? You know, what has my family given me in my DNA code? How about heart ailments? My wife's father died of a heart attack. She was 11. He was 42. So immediately the question is, what does she carry in her that might be of heart concern as it impacts our own children? Breast cancer. Her mother faced and fought that. So we carry with us these moments where suddenly we have to take inventory of the things that have influenced us. And define, in some cases, our own experience. And that's just the health stuff. What about the other things that might plague us? In other words, what about divorce and remarriage? What about alcohol or drugs or any kind of addictions that people have? What are what we would call to be the family legacy that we carry with us that might well be something even if it's what is often described as generational sin. Have you ever thought through that? You ever wondered, what am I carrying with me that I understand or maybe that I don't even know about? It can be quite a burden to think through it. And if we're not careful, it can take over our thought process and we start looking for one of two things. To explain everything that's wrong or to blame someone. You with me on this one? As parents, I'm sure we've at some time wondered to what extent have we hurt our own children's development? And then we carry this overwhelming, sometimes overwhelming idea that we are fully responsible for how our children think about the world. If you're a conscientious parent, particularly as a believing parent, that's a reasonable opportunity to think about your duty, the stewardship of your children. Rightly so, that we would raise them in the, the truth and the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord. It's a very common phrase for a reason. But it can also go too far. Because what happens is, is it per, can be perceived to be that somehow our story and the influences that we've been under or the influences that we bear in the life of someone else actually is now the only agent for which someone is not responsible anymore. Does that make sense? So we live in this kind of conflict of are we responsible or not, either as the parent or as the child? And then when the child becomes the adult, do we blame somebody for our own shortcomings, our own struggles, our own difficulties? If I'm honest with you, which I would be, is I remember going from being excited to be a Johnson. And the only thing that really kind of set me apart in the room of Johnsons was my first name. But I knew I belonged to the Johnsons or in my grandmother's case, the Bowens, or in her grandmother's, her mother's case, the McBrears. But my first name was when my identity as a particular person in this family began to be my story. The family is the first place we get our identity shaped. It's in a large setting. We are the son or the daughter of a set of parents. We are the sibling of our brothers and sisters. We are the cousin, we are the grandchild, and so on and so on. And family is extraordinarily important to God's world that he creates with the intent that his promises bear through the generations. So family is incredibly important. So I put that out as the context for the conversation around something fundamental in the Christian faith And that is is how we got to be who we are and what went wrong. And where does it leave us today? In spite of my history with my grandparents and the McBrayers or the Bowens or the Johnsons, there was another part of the story that started to emerge. And that is, is, I grew up completely unchurched. I rarely ever went to Church. Maybe with my grandparents because there was some family associative guilt that I needed to go with them just to be nice. And I had nowhere else to go. I can remember one time going with my other set of grandparents. They took me to church. I was supposed to go to vacation Bible school. I went in the front door. They left. I ran out the back door and I stayed gone for the entirety of VBS the entire week. They, I could not stand to be in church. I wasn't proud of it. I just I didn't like anything about it. I'd get into the, my middle school years, and I would do the exact same thing, only on Sunday mornings. So I grew up without an interest in church. One morning, my mother, who wanted to go, came to me while I was sitting on the couch with my father and said, David, would you like to go to church with me this morning? My parents had a very difficult marriage, ending in divorce early. And I looked over at my father before I answered my, dad's, my, my mother's question, and I said, Dad, are you going? And he said, Nope. I looked at my mom and I said, I'll stay with Dad. You can see quickly that my lack of interest between going or not going to church is now confirmed by my father. I had an, I had an ally. So I grew up with that attitude that wasn't very interested in Christianity at all, except I believed that God had created the world, had created me. So that left me in this kind of odd spot. I believed in God as a creator, but had no interest in him as my savior. Ironically, it was my grandmother, Virgie, one night, and we were walking, I was a little boy, and we were walking down the streets of Plano where they lived in the early days, and we're looking up through the trees, and we're looking at the stars, and my grandmother says to me, David, do you know who created those stars and put them there? I didn't say anything. I said, well, besides no. And she said, God did. God created the heavens, he created the earth, and he created you. And it stuck with me. I could still see the stars through the trees in Plano in my mind. So in the midst of I don't have any interest in Christianity, there were moments in which I had been introduced to what is true in the world. Over the years, I grew very uncomfortable with my alienation from God. I grew very uncomfortable and burdened with this unexplained guilt that I was struggling with. There was no one confronting me. There was no one judging me. I basically was allowed to do almost whatever I wanted. I didn't have to deal with parents who were interested in my life. I didn't have to deal with anyone preaching to me or telling me I should be a certain way. I was literally left to my own. That sounds like a blessing, but it was actually a curse. Because what it meant was I had no answer for this unrelenting guilt that I felt and this unsettled uneasiness and this lack of peace in my life. I didn't have anyone telling me that what I was doing was wrong, which meant the wrong I was doing with sanctions is okay. So now my moral compass is pointing in the wrong direction. What I didn't understand until I got to college was that the reason I felt the way I felt in those quiet moments of being alone and I had this creeping uneasiness that would never go away, so so consuming was it, if I was in traffic and I came to a full stop, I got really anxious someone was going to shoot me. I had no reason for this. But I remember thinking, literally, I would stop behind cars from a distance if the light was red and my anxiety would start going up and I would start drifting so that no one would get a clear shot at me. And the moment the light stayed red too long and I came to a full stop, I could just feel the tension in my hands. And the light would turn green and I'd have a momentary pause and I'd go. I never felt comfortable going to bed or sleeping. I slept two to three hours a night. It was, it was annoying, a gnawing, a totally consuming uh, dread. And then something happened. I got sick. And I went to see my grandmother, Virgie, Mama, who is a retired registered nurse, and I landed on her couch. I remember the day I knocked on her door and I said, I don't feel so good. And she looked at me and she goes, You look terrible. My fever was 104, and I landed on her couch with the flu, and she and my grandfather nursed me back to health. And two or three months later, after going to church with them out of just respect, the preacher was preaching to me. And now all of a sudden, I'm hearing something that said, wait a minute, he's talking to me. And my ears perked up, and I sat fixed, listening. To what he was saying for the first time in my life. And he was talking about Jesus. So I gave my life to Christ. And immediately all the things I dreaded were gone. All the things I feared were gone. I couldn't explain the first night I slept through the night. And I woke up refreshed and calm. I couldn't explain it. I just knew it was real. A year or so later... I'm taking my classes at SMU, as Drake had mentioned, and I'm in a philosophy course, and I'm starting to read my Bible, and they're asking hard questions in my philosophy course about truth. And I had no idea what they were talking about. I wasn't sure of anything in terms of Christianity. And I suddenly had met this guy in my little church that was uh, a seminary student, a friend of Drake's, and I started calling him back in the day when you had a house phone. You picked up the phone and you dialed. Some of you remember those days nine you know and I would call Tony and I'd say Tony I had these questions and he was finishing up his days at seminary and he would answer my questions and one of the questions I ask him is where did sin come from what is sin because I'm hearing about this in church and I've but I, what, what is it? Where, where is it? And he goes, well, you need to, to go to the Bible, which I said, okay, good. Where do I go? I had no idea about any of this sort of thing. And what I learned was that there was Adam, and there was Eve, and there was a command, and there was a violation, and suddenly he sinned. And we became sinners, and as simple as that act was, or as Derek Kidner would say, and so hard as undoing, I realized that the reason I felt the way I felt is because I had done something before I knew nothing of. I had sinned. And I had become in a place that had set me apart from my God, the Creator, and I was alienated from him. I was separated from him, but I didn't understand the circumstance. So what I've done with this long introduction, I hope I haven't built the front porch too big or that we've flown around before I land it too long, is I want to talk about three of the most important theological truths throughout the history of the church and they are at the center of the Christian faith. And these three things, which I'm going to do one week for each, today's the first. These three things are, if there's any way that you could hold on to the centerpiece of the Christian faith and why we believe what we believe about the Father, the Son, and our relationship through the power of the Holy Spirit, these are the three. There's been a few things that always make me a little uncomfortable when I say something like that. You're going to take the fullness of the the gospel, the fullness of the teaching of the Bible, the fullness of theology, and say it comes down to three things. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but sometimes we make it overly complicated. I think we could probably look at this when they were asking the man that was born blind, tell us about Jesus. He goes, listen, (laughs) I was blind and now I see. Here's my testimony. One of my mentors and one of the men that I admire in terms of the way he sees the world is a guy by the name of John Aaron. You probably don't know the name John Aaron, but if you've seen the movie Apollo 13, you would recognize that John Aaron is the one who said power is everything, and he would save Apollo 13. I later interviewed John because I was so profoundly interested in his ability to identify what were the essential things and he said, listen, David, all space flights came down to only two things, power and weight. You build a spacecraft, you've got to get it off the ground. Make it too heavy, you have to have more power. And I thought, well, that's pretty simplistic. He goes, listen, there's a lot in that, but it's about power and weight. So how would you summarize the Christian faith around the most essential elements that define who God the creator is, who is man, who is Jesus, and how do we have a relationship with him. And I want to offer these three things over the next three weeks. The first, by the way, I'll give you the title, and I hope you don't misunderstand me like some friends of mine who misunderstood me. These are known as the three great imputations. I-M-P-U-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. The three great imputations. I was talking to a friend of mine this past week about the three great imputations. He goes, what amputations are you talking about? I said, no, no, (laughs) imputations. Be clear. The first great imputation, which we'll look at in just a moment, is the moment around which Adam's sin is imputed to mankind. That's the first. Adam's sin is... Because of what he did is imputed to mankind. We'll explore this one in detail for the balance of the morning. Next week, we'll talk about the second great imputation. If the first one is from the one to all, the second one is the sin of mankind is imputed to Jesus Christ. Now we're going to reverse the first. If the first is one to all, the second one is all to one. All of the sin of mankind is imputed to Jesus Christ. We're going to work in just a moment on the definition of imputation and we'll circle back around and hopefully make sense of it. The third, and this is the one that was referred to earlier during the service, the third imputation is the one that is the most glorious. Because the third one is the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer by faith alone. And if, if we don't do this one justice, I will never ever be able to preach again. Because this is the glory of God. They all are. But to see the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to you as a believer by faith alone changes everything. It changes everything. The question is, is, what does imputation mean? So what I want us to do, and I know you're wondering, is he ever going to open the Bible and the answer is yes. So let's go to Romans chapter 4. We're going to look at two words. And in these two words, we're going to look at one strong passage, chapter 5 of Romans. So go to Romans chapter 4. We're going to jump ahead a little bit, but don't lose Romans 4. And I want us to look at the word, and it's used in a couple of different places. They're two different original words, and we won't necessarily split them around a Greek language study. But I would like to highlight that two things essentially mean the same thing. It's God's perspective on an act of someone who impacts another. You with me on this one? That's, what, that's the key phrase I want you to think about. The act of one impacts another from God's perspective. It's how God thinks and sees and makes decisions around what one does and how he reacts to that. For others, You with me on this one? Imagine something as simple as someone making an offering. Someone is doing something, they're making an offering, and God is responding to the action of the person making the offering. What does God think? What does he do with what we did? It's as fundamental as that. So what I'd like us to do is look at this historical review. Paul's going to do it concerning Abraham in Romans chapter 4. But he's going to actually be hearkening back to Genesis 15. We won't go to Genesis 15 because Paul does a great job showing us in Romans 4. I'm reading from the New American Standard. What then shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God. There's the act. And it was, my Bible reads, reckoned. Does your Bible say that? Or counted? Okay, counted. It's the same idea. It's It's literally, somebody did something. And now it has this value. Somebody did something, God makes a determination of its value. Here, the idea of reckoned is literally an accounting term in the way we would say it. It sounds kind of silly, reckoning, I'm reckoning. Well, that means you're thinking, you're contemplating, you're calculating. That's what that term would mean. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's belief in a promise that God had made in Genesis chapter 15 that now God credits to Abraham God's righteousness. And it's that act, that moment, that event, that we can say the Bible declares Abraham as saved. With me on this one? This is a turning point in human history. Because now, through the basis of Abraham's faith, God is going to credit to Abraham his righteousness. It's how Abraham is going to be seen by God. But the focus here is on the term credited or reckoned. That's what I want us to focus on. I'm not going to do all of this every time. I just want you to see the word as it emerges as we read. Now, to the one who works, verse 4, his wage is not reckoned or credited as a favor but as what is due. But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned or credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons or credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account or reckon or credit. We okay with this? So I want you to think about this term impute is a crediting or a reckoning or an accounting. It's to charge one to another. You with me on this one? Okay? Hold on to your place in Romans because we're going to come back to to five, excuse me, But go forward to Philemon, one little bitty chapter. Philemon chapter 1, there's only one, so we'll go to verse 18 of Philemon. Drake, one of the things I enjoy about being in your congregation, if it goes back to our days together, is you're going to know your Bible. You're going to turn back and forth. And so often now, people don't even know what the sound of a page turning sounds like. It's always going to an app, and you just... Skip ahead. this is uh Bible drill. Did y'all ever do Bible drill? Cool. okay, I heard about it i didn't grow up doing it. I just heard about it. all right, Philemon Philemon chapter one verse eighteen Philemon is uh, received a letter from Paul, and there's a particular issue that Paul's trying to address, and that is is that there may be money owed in a transaction that he's trying to deal with a particular person. And what happens in verse 18, I'll cut right to it. Paul writes, But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Charge it to my account. I didn't know that Paul had a credit card, but he did. Or he had some credit account. So somehow or another, Paul was going to receive a reckoning or the the debt of a person is going to be imputed to Paul's account. All right, back to chapter 5 of Romans. It's at this particular point that I always like to be able to stop and take questions or observations, or but then I realize this is not the right forum for that, so bear with me for a second as we go forward. Chapter 5. I'm going to read a longer section here, and then we're going to examine these passages in somewhat uh, more detail. The first imputation of Adam's sin to mankind actually is rooted most firmly in verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, and what I want you to notice very carefully is Paul's explicitly precise language here. The last of verse 12 reads, because all sinned. The history of the study of the book of Romans and the history of the teaching of the church has described that this one event of Adam's sin And the understanding of the phrase, because all sinned, at the end of verse 12, is that we sinned when Adam sinned. How is that possible? We weren't alive. How is that even possible? The language of this particular verse is strong in showing that the act that Adam committed the sin that Adam committed of eating the forbidden fruit led all of us into sin. We are sinners because of the act of one man. We sin when he sinned. How is that possible? The imputation idea would say that the one act of Adam was imputed to all of mankind. That might well be what the passage says, but it also may be something that you might feel a violation of your own sense of justice. That doesn't seem right. Can we at least admit that that's a little bit of a struggle? How is that possible? That God would hold us accountable and charge us with the same act when we didn't even exist? And I thought I had an issue with my Irish background. No, Mama, we're Scottish. How is that possible? It gets more complicated. It's not the heart disease. It's not the cancer. It's not all the other things that we may get from our parents or our grandparents or our genealogy. It's actually none of those things. You know what we get from our first parent? A sinful nature. Adam's nature from his created innocence fell. And he was changed when he sinned against God. And when he was changed, everything that came from him from there on was like him. Was like him. Adam created in the image of God, was not perfect. He was innocent. And he was tested. And he failed. And when he failed, his innocence was lost. His nature was changed. And he was alienated from the presence of God. Literally kicked out of the garden. Where he used to walk in the presence of God, he was now alienated and forbidden from what was to be his place of work and his home and we have since that moment been seeking to return to the place where we would be in fellowship with God in time and space continuum through one man sin entered the world and with it death how do we know that we're sinners is we die What's the evidence of sin is death. So we now know that there's a link between sin and death. And we used to think about this and recognize the easiest thing that we can say in terms of the evidence of where sin is, is the presence of death. We would say in science that there's entropy in the universe. Energy is being lost Things aren't going to get better. Things are going to get worse. Things wind down. Things slow down. Things decay. Energy is lost out of the system. It's universal. We live in a fallen world. Matter of fact, I have a picture from the last time I was here. I was talking about we are fallen people in a fallen world, and I said that. And over here somewhere, and she's not here today, was a middle school girl, and the whole time she's doodling. And it caught my attention. By the way, I noticed what you're doing. Don't take it personal. Don't worry about it. I'm not trying to investigate. I used to sit in the back row and draw football players during the sermons until I suddenly was pricked by the Holy Spirit to listen to the sermon. So I would doodle. And I looked over, and she was doodling. And I thought, well, she's paying attention. She's doing something. And at the end of the service, she and her mother came up, and uh, she said, I heard what you said. I said, really? I saw you doodling. And she held up her notebook. And she had written, we are fallen people in a fallen world. Only it had done in beautiful calligraphy. And she had drawn little flowers and all kinds of little things. And I thought, she just heard something incredibly important. And she, she wrote down the thing that is our story. I heard Francis Schaefer say uh, when I was in college, first time I ever, the only time I ever got to hear him live, he said, and I didn't know this, but Francis Schaefer had a little bit of a lisp. Instead of saying fallen, he would say fallen. had a little W in it somewhere. I'm not sure what that was. We are fallen people. <laughs> Francis, you're throwing me. But he was right. We're a fallen people. Why do we say that? Why do we talk about original sin, which nobody talks about anymore? Carl Meninger, the great psychologist, said, whatever happened to sin? Whatever became of sin? We've, we've changed the words. We're broken. we changed the words. We need therapy. What about we're estranged from God? That is what the first imputation is. Man fell, God charged all of mankind with Adam's sin because we are now of Adam. So Romans chapter 5.12, hands off to Romans chapter 5.13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not, and here's that word in my Bible, imputed when there is no law. In other words, it's not accounting because there's not a specific sin against which you can be measured. The law would be unveiled in Exodus chapter 20, and what would happen is now you've got a long list. There were 10, but there were what, Drake? 613 commands of something of that sort? You now had a, uh, you had a command and you had a name for every sin you committed. And I'm sure there were other sins that just fell under a general category called unbelief. In other words, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, what Paul is doing here is he's arguing very specifically, even though there was no law against which you, as the Jewish people who are reading this book, You knew you had an accounting after Moses. What about that time period between Adam and Moses when there is no law? How do you know there was sin? And the answer is death. Death. So did sin exist when there was no law? Did the law create sin? The answer is no. The law accounted for sin. It named it. It told you what you shouldn't do and it told you what would happen if you did what you shouldn't do. So the law codified the description of sin but did not make things sinful. That would be a major issue later in Paul's writing. Did the the law cause me to be a sinner? No, the law accounted for your sin. It's you who are the sinner. It's been an ancient battle and I hope you can think with me about this. I have an opinion that I would venture a guess on where you would choose. Do you sin because you are a sinner Do you sin because you are a sinner or are you a sinner because you sin? One is about your activity that produces a condition of your heart and your nature. The other is about your nature which produces a certain behavior that's consistent with your nature. What we typically do is we think we're good until the moment we do something wrong. According to this particular position, we are sinners first. That's our nature. And then we act according to our nature, which is we do sinful things. We're sinful without doing anything because we've already sinned. That's the passage. That's the imputation of Adam's sin to all of mankind. That wraps us all up, the one to all. We're all in it together. We're all estranged from God, our creator. We are all in need of Jesus, our savior. It wasn't just the peculiarities of my rearing. And it wasn't just the background from which I've come. It isn't just my family's story. I can't blame my father. I can't blame my mother. I can look to the head of the human race and say, I was there. I sinned with Adam. I wasn't in the garden, but I carry the weight of that judgment. And my nature is forever changed. Actually, I never had one that wasn't sinful until I knew Christ. Do we understand this is okay for us to wrestle with this? Because this idea of justice suddenly pops its head up and it claims our right. I should not be held responsible for something I didn't do. And we fly in the face, if I'm fair in trying to represent the struggle that many believers have in, can I handle this teaching, this passage? It's not the full story because there's another story next week I want to talk about that's the opposite of this apparent injustice to one that is actually an injustice, but we'll get there next week. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Suddenly, we're introduced to a comparison to this idea, this this sin of Adam that had a particular and unique quality to it. His sin would take out the entire human race in regard to all mankind now being guilty. There's no one else that sinned like that. No one else has ever done that. There's never been a reckoning. There's never been an imputation of one to another in the same way. And Paul's saying that. That's not the case. What he is highlighting is he's trying to address this issue between the original creation of Adam and later, as I said, with reference to Moses and the law. And he's trying to work through that. But he's going to then flip the switch and change the emphasis. And I'm going to read through this directly, starting in verse 15. But the free gift, the contrast, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died. And why did they die? Because they sinned. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus, abound to the many. As I said earlier, one to all, all to one. We're going to see that turn next week. And this is a preview. Verse 16 And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Or as question 34 would be, what is sanctification? It's the outworking of the Holy Spirit's work in our life because of justification. It's the foundation of sanctification, which you'll deal with starting in chapter 6. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift is of of righteousness will reign in life through the one jesus christ notice the reference one many many one one many many one one hand the other hand one hand the other hand you get the image don't you that paul was standing there with the weight of the person of Adam and his transgression and the death that came because of that and the condemnation. But on the other hand is Jesus in his one act and the blessing and the grace of God that results in justification. You can see it. He is comparing these two men and the impact that each of them have had on the human race. In this glorious manifestation of the comparison between what one does to all and what God thinks of all in regard to one. The impact is profound. The the observational moment we have is to stand and stare right smack into the dividing line between the power of what one man has done and what the power of one man can do to change mankind. It is an amazing universe to think of Where all hinges around two men. Did I say earlier that this is some of the most profound teaching in all of Christian theology? How can Paul bring us down to these two men in such a few number of verses, but all of human history hinges on these two? But there's a third, and I'll get to that one in the third week. So come back. Well, for the second and the third. Verse 18, so then, as through one transgression, now the focus is not on the men, but on the transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Thank God for grace that exceeds our transgressions. You cannot out sin God's grace. That's not to embolden you to sin greatly. That is to comfort you that there is nothing you have done that you're too far away from God's grace. It doesn't matter. Take comfort, sinner, that you're not too far gone, that God's grace can't save you. It's true for the history of mankind, and it's true today. I remember the first time I read Romans 7. What I saw was paul 's conflict, the thing i don 't want to do, I do the thing i don't that I should do i don 't and oh wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God and Jesus Christ and I realized reading Romans seven that someone had already seen what I was struggling with, my conflict, and then this glorious declaration. Christ Jesus will rescue you, and he has rescued you who believe. So you can't out-sin grace. Verse 21, that is, sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm going to stop with this particular part of Romans because I'm going to explore a little couple of things that I think we need to be careful with, if you don't mind, that we can easily err in portraying to someone a guilt or carrying a guilt that we often are prone to do but shouldn't. And I want to offer some careful counsel in light of mankind Has fallen with Adam. And the person who has sinned is responsible for their own sin. Can I say that clearly? Because what I want you to understand is there is always the tension, and rightly so, that we are responsible for someone else's life as parents. We struggle with the influence or the impact that we will have on our own children's development. I'm sure you have struggled with that. I'm sure at some point you've wondered that. There's this idea of generational sin that somehow just continues through the generations as if it's some unstoppable destiny that you're just going to be like that because that's your family's history and that's your legacy and that's just what you do hank williams jr blamed his daddy hank williams for all his troubles and he would just talk about hank and i understand why if you knew something about the senior and all the troubles the junior had some of you have no idea who I'm talking about. That's okay. There's a history channel. You should look it up. If we read Exodus chapter 20, you'll see one of the commands. Why don't we turn there? I think we've got time, Drake. Oh, we're, we're going to, no, I'm not going to turn there. I'm not going to turn there. I'm going to summarize because we're right at 1201. I just noticed. Let's do it this way. If you were to go to Exodus chapter 20, you're going to read in the prohibition, the command against idolatry, you're going to read that God will visit upon the iniquity, the third and fourth generations. And this idea of some sin being visited upon the third and fourth generation is clear evidence that there is an impact of a generational sin that reaches down to the third and fourth generations. The question is, why does it stop there if it does? And are we sure that all sin or any sin actually fits in the category of being visited by God in the third and fourth generation? Like, what is that? That's the first thing. The second thing, the second half of the verse saying, but he visits with mercy upon thousands of generations. So there seems to be this little window of judgment that lands on the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of someone's sin. I want to offer a, a caution about that idea. And the caution is be careful to take any sin that may be something you're struggling with or you see someone else who's struggling with or you may be struggling with it because of some other experience and thinking it's a generational sin for which you have to just endure or you're under that judgment as if it's somehow your fate. I don't like that word, but you know what I'm talking about. I want to offer that the context of Exodus chapter 20 on that particular command is specific to a command. It's specific to idolatry. Every time this idea pops up in the Torah, in Moses' writing, it's always around idolatry. And it's idolatrous people will impact their family in drastic ways. Does that make sense? Abraham grew up a moon worshiper. His father, Terah, according to Joshua's, the end of the book of Joshua, we see it emerge In Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, when we're introduced to Torah, he came from the Ur of Chaldees. You know what they did in the Ur of Chaldees? They studied astronomy. It became astrology, and Abraham grew up polytheistic. He was an idolater. And you know what his family struggled with for three and four generations? Deception and lying. He did it. Isaac did it. Jacob did it. Until Jacob got caught one night at a river called the Jabbok. And God touched him and wounded him. And his name changed from trickster, deceiver, into Israel. You've wrestled with God and you've lived. If you do the genealogy, through Abraham, he's four generations. And through Sarah, he's three generations. Jacob is third and fourth generation at the same time. It's an amazing idea to think about. The idolatrous pattern of a family was broken when Abraham looked up at the stars where he had gone to school as a child. Learning astronomy and astrology and he looked up at the stars and God says, stop. As many as are stars, so shall your descendants be. Through you the nations shall be blessed. And Abraham believed the one true God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See where this goes? God is turning us around from our histories. He's saving us from our sin, our nature. And whatever condition we've walked into and we're blaming everyone else for it, can I just encourage you to stop and accept that you, before the Lord, are a sinner who needs a savior. And he is good to save us if we believe. I was sitting in a pew toward the back of that little church with my grandparents. And I was sitting next to Virgie, Maumau. And because she had been praying for me and after having talked to me about a creator God through the stars... She had prayed for me and confronted me and talked to me about Jesus as a Savior for years. And I had stonewalled her. I had kept my distance from her. I loved her, but I wasn't interested. I went off and did my thing, as I've described earlier, until I got sick. And I landed on her couch. And I sat in the pew next to her one Sunday morning. And she whispered to me, David, as the hymn is playing, why don't you go down front and talk to the pastor? And I whispered back to her, not today. The following week, I made an appointment with the pastor. I walked into his study. I sat down with him. We talked about where I was, what was going on with me. And what, I had, ha- what had happened to me is I had come to Christ through a simple prayer driving down the road when I was at this misery that I was in and I'm literally pounding on the steering wheel and I looked up in my rearview mirror and I said, Jesus, save me. That's all I knew. That's all I knew. I couldn't explain any of this stuff. I knew none of this stuff. I just knew what sin was. I was living it. Finally, I had a definition. Finally, I had a cause. Finally, I had an understanding that I am separated from my God. And I knew based on what my grandmother had said, trust Jesus. That's what I prayed. No sooner than I prayed that prayer, my car ran out of gas. <laughs> and I coasted off the country road, pulled off to another road so I could get off the main drag. And I um, put my car in park. It was already off. (laughs) It was out of gas. And I beat on the steering wheel in frustration and cried. What I had failed to do in my prayer was stop at the gas station a mile and a half back and get my $2 worth of gas, which back then was about eight gallons. (laughs) You could get to, you could go a long ways on $2. Not today. And I dried my tears and Got my gas can and walked the mile and a half back. Got my $2 worth of gas. It was one of the best walks I ever had. So I'm sitting there that morning, and my grandmother says, David, I said, not today. I go to the pastor. I talked with him, told him what had happened to me. He said, David, you have done what you needed to do, and that's to trust Jesus. And he comforted me that I was now a child of Jesus, that I had a relationship with him. I had eternal life. I thanked him for the time. Didn't say anything to my grandparents when they asked me, how was the meeting? I said, it was good. No detail, because I'm a boy. That's the way you talk. You don't give any definitions. You don't explain details. Unless it's a football game, I'll give you everything. The following Sunday, same routine. I'm sitting there. They do that, that altar call. They played the hymn. And I got up and I walked down. My grandmother didn't have to say a word to me. So Drake, the irony, is, I look at the uh, bulletin, the hymn that they played that day is just as I am. Hey, sinner, come home. There is a Savior. His name is Jesus. And what Adam did, we did. And what we are, he will change you, a sinner. Come home, believe. If you don't know Christ, there are no excuses for how you feel about things. You're estranged and you feel the way you do because you're a sinner and you need Jesus Christ to save you. His arms are open wide. His grace is sufficient to cover all your sins. And we will focus next week on the glorious work that he did on the cross. This unthinkable, unjust act he did on your behalf. And what God thought of what he did changes everything. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this marvelous, unbelievable truth that you have given us in such a simple way. You put ink on a page words in a book but by the power of the Holy Spirit we know it's your word we know it's life-changing we know it is the work that you've done to tell a story that we need to hear so we're not the same father we come as a sinner we can leave as a saint so simple the act so hard it's undoing but father we know that Jesus Christ is died and rose again so that his words of take and eat undo all the things that we did in the garden so father we thank you for the simplicity of belief so father i pray for any that don't know you that you would prick their conscience convict them to such a point that they could be born again and have new life in jesus christ in that glorious name we pray amen